Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 25, we're going to be picking up where we left off. We're in verse 27 today. We're going to be going verses 27 through 34. 27 through 34, and we usually go one verse at a time, and somebody reads the verse, and then we you know, we handle that verse, and then we read the next one, and we handle that one. Today, I kind of want to take just a moment to kind of read over to get the whole story first, and then we'll look at it verse by verse. But starting in verse 27, it says this, so the boys grew. So who are the boys? Do you guys remember who the boys are? There we go, Esau and Jacob, exactly right, the twin boys that had such a momentous type of birth, right? Esau born first, Jacob holding onto the hill, right? There was that promise of God that was given to Rebecca when she was in anguish, when she was pregnant, oh, what is going on inside of me? And then God had told her that there's two nations fighting in your womb, and basically the older would end up serving the younger. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Some of your versions might say an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a mild man. Other versions would say a plain man or a peaceful man or a quiet man, dwelling in tents, or one version I know says preferring to stay home. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. So that's the story we're going to be looking at today. Now you're probably going, oh, now I get it. Why does he have soup on the table? I got a can of soup and a little styrofoam thing of cup of noodles. All right. These are just visuals, just uh, illustrations that uh, we'll get to in in a little while as we get going through this. So looking more particularly at verse 27 and taking these verses one at a time, somebody mind reading verse 27 then. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jake was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Excellent, thank you. So here we have the boys, and they're growing up. You remember the entire estate, right, has been passed from Abraham down to Isaac, right? And that there's going to come a day when Isaac's going to need to pass it down to one of his sons. These two being twins, you would think, well, does really one of them count as a firstborn? Does one of them count as a secondborn? Yeah, there actually is. Esau counts as the firstborn. So most likely the entire estate or a very, very large portion of it would be passed down to Esau. All right? And as these boys are growing, and as children tend to do, they show themselves to have individual characters, right? 
I've got three girls, and I can't believe how different the three of them can be. I mean, I thought it would be easy. You, you have one, you have another one, you just you, all the same clothes, you let them wear the, you know. I thought it would just be like an easy trend. They're completely different. Then we have a third, and it's completely different again. I don't know how many different variations there are, but we said enough. Because <laughs> I can't do any more variations. All right. So here we have two boys. They seem to be as different as different gets, right? And here we have one of them is a skillful hunter. He seems to prefer to spend time out there in the wilds, out there in the fields, out there hunting game. While his brother, his younger brother Jacob, seems to prefer to stay near the tents, prefer to stay at home, prefer to stay with the group, right, with the clan, with the community there. And then here's what ends up happening. Eventually, like I said, somebody's going to get this all passed down to them. And I can't help but think of Jacob wondering, why am I always stuck doing the chores and my brother gets to go out on a hike? How come I get stuck with the hard work, the tasks of taking care of things around the house, when my brother, just because dad likes the stuff he brings back and makes great tasty meals for him, my brother gets a special treatment where he doesn't have to do anything that I'm doing. I'm working hard. And when the day comes for this clan to be passed down to my brother, because he's the firstborn, he gets the birthright, right? He has the birthright. When the day comes, we're going to be in bad shape. He doesn't even know how to run this place. I would. I would know how to run this place. I've been here. I see these people. I know these people. My brother's out every day, gone. He doesn't know the servants' names. He doesn't know that that servant over there just had a child. He doesn't know that that servant over there is sick today and hopefully is going to get better tomorrow. He doesn't know that I'm pitching in to carry more than my share of the load because of the situations that are going on in the camp and in the clan. I know how things run around here. But my brother doesn't. He's out doing whatever he wants to do. He's following his own selfish whims out there in the field. And what, he brings back a deer or a gazelle and makes some nice food out of it and dad's happy with him? That's not fair. You can imagine Jacob stewing on this a little bit, right, as time is going by. No pun intended. No pun intended. It's actually true. It wasn't pun intended. Can you sense that there's already tension going on between these two brothers? All right, there's tension going on. Have we seen tension between brothers before? Can you think of any brothers we've seen tension between? Name some brothers we've seen tension between. Cain and Abel, right from the get-go, right? The first two brothers, Cain and Abel. And then more recently, up near this story, we had Ishmael and Isaac, right? Ishmael, 13 years older than Isaac. Isaac on the party that he was getting weaned at, and Ishmael's making sport of him or making fun of him. I mean, that led to a split in the family right there. So we've got tensions. We've seen it before between siblings, and we're going to see it again as we move through the book of Genesis, as we move further on. Yeah, so this is something to be expected, at least from the stories and from personal experience. Anybody have a sibling? Yeah? You got siblings? Did you always get along with your siblings? No. Uh-uh. No. Uh-uh. And uh, I can tell you with my daughters, no. They, I sit there and I go, you guys all know by heart this verse that says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you, and you don't practice that between your sisters, and then I get all, you know, flamed out as a dad. <laughs> Sorry, a little soapbox there for a second. <laughs> verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau. Because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Some of your versions there will say Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his venison. They take the liberty of filling in a word. Venison is deer meat, all right? It doesn't specify, though, that he was hunting for deer. It can be anything, but venison provides kind of the idea of what's going on here. Apparently, he likes a good barbecue or a good roast or something, <laughs> all right? So it's tense, right? It's getting tense when you find out that the parents are split in their devotions and affections for their sons, right? 
one parent has a favorite, and that would, that would be bad enough for one parent to have a favorite and the other parent to be fair. Here we have both parents have a favorite, and both parents pick a different son to have as a favorite. This is going to create trouble. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. Parents having favorites among their children is not a good recipe for a good household. Mm-hmm. All right, If it doesn't bite you in the beginning, it's going to bite you in the end. Mm-hmm. All right, So favoritism in the family, don't do it. Moving on from there. He loved this game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. We don't have an idea why Rebecca loved Jacob. At least it doesn't tell us. We can speculate. Perhaps Rebecca is at home. Rebecca's in the tents. And I suppose maybe sometimes Esau would go off to the field and Jacob maybe goes to mom and says, why? And doing his whining, right? And maybe she would, oh, dear, you know, don't worry about it. By the way, you know, maybe she told him, by the way, I have something important to tell you. Your dad loves your brother more than you, and just let that be. But let me tell you about a day that God appeared to me. God told me that you would be the one that would end up being in charge. And maybe she fueled this rivalry going on, right? So there's probably or there's possibly this opportunity where Jacob maybe knows about the promise that God gave about the older serving the younger. And maybe Rebecca used that to console Jacob. Where it says here, whereas Esau was a hunter, Jacob, it says, was a quiet man. The word that's translated there for quiet has a couple different ways that it can be translated. One of the ways that it can be translated is perfect or blameless. But you read this story, and no, he's not perfect or blameless, all right? By the time the story's done, no, he's not, all right? So it's kind of interesting and kind of ironic there that that word can be translated as perfect and blameless when he's not. If you were to read the story and you find out at the end, okay, Jacob ends up getting the blessing, and you think, oh, that's what God intended all along, you might be tempted to think, well, he got it because he was perfect and blameless, but he's not. So what does that leave? That leaves God in his sovereignty making the choice. God in his sovereignty is the one that gets to call the shots, It's not because Jacob earned or deserved that blessing, that Jacob earned or deserved that right of the firstborn. He didn't. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. But God in his sovereignty oversaw this working out in this way, in fact, predicting it and announcing it to Rebekah before the children were even born. Going to verse 29 now, it says, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Some of your versions will have famished or exhausted even exhausted and hungry. So here comes Esau, right? He's the mighty hunter, right? The skilled hunter, and he has nothing. He didn't get anything, right? So how skilled are you? Today, okay, you maybe had a bad day. All right, so he's coming in. He doesn't have anything, and he's hungry, and he's tired, right? Do you ever make decisions when you're hungry and you're tired? They usually turn out to be pretty bad decisions, all right? You ever go grocery shopping when you're hungry and tired? That's when bad decisions really show up, right? Yeah, I come home with stuff, and I'm like, I don't even shop, right? And I just decide, oh, tonight I'm going to go, and it's late already. I should be in bed already, but I decide I'm going to stop at the store because I'm hungry and I'm going to get a few things. Especially if you shop at Costco. Especially if you shop at Costco. Right, and there's no way to eat that. So you guys get what I'm talking about, right? Don't make decisions when you're hungry and when you're tired. So here he's hungry, he's tired, he's coming in from the field. And then verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, please feed me that same red stew. All right, the words here in Hebrew, they convey an awkwardness about Esau. They convey uh, an impulsiveness about Esau. He actually says words that in English could be translated as let me gobble down or let me swallow some of that. I mean, he just sounds like a, a brute, all right? So he says, you know, just give me some of that. He calls it red, red stuff. All right. In Hebrew, he says red twice. So he calls it, give me some of that red, red stuff. You know, it's just like this awkwardness and this uncouthness about him. 
By the way, the end of that verse right there where it says that, therefore his name was called Edom. Edom, it rhymes with, or it's a play on words with red. You remember when he was born, right? He was described as having a ruddy appearance. And oftentimes that's as having a red complexion, all right? Or, or even maybe red hair, because remember it said he had uh, lots of hair. He was a very hairy baby. So now it's getting more play, right? This whole idea of being red, he wants some of that red stuff. Therefore, his name was called Edom, a play on words there with the red. Some of the other ways that it can be translated is quick, let me have, let me devour, let me gulp down, let me swallow. In fact, Spicer calls him an uncouth glutton in the way that he talks here. And then some of the other things as well. A lentil, you're probably wondering, what is a lentil? According to the Archaeological Study Bible, a lentil is a small pea-like annual plant that grows well, even in nutrient-poor soil. Its pods turn reddish-brown when boiled. It has provided an important source of nourishment in the Near East since ancient times. So this is not a fancy food, all right? This is just a common run-of-the-mill cheap stew, mm-hmm. all right? You want some cheap stew? I got some cheap foods right here, right? Cheap soups. I got a can of soup. I got that other one, the cup of noodles there. I mean, to kind of convey that this is just common stuff. This isn't fancy. This is not a gourmet restaurant. Jacob's just cooking this thing. What happens in verse 31, though? We end up having Jacob saying, sell me your birthright, right? Instead of saying, oh, here you go, brother. I'll give you a bowl of soup. All right, you're hungry. I can see that. No, give me your birthright. You know what that's like? That's like me taking this and going, you want some of this? You want some of this? Then I tell you what, you give me your paycheck. How many of you are going to take me up on that? No, that's stupid. I'm not going to give you my paycheck for this. How about, I'll give you this, you give me your car. Anybody going to take me up on that? Give me your, no, stupid. That would be a stupid trade. Give, give me your retirement account. Ridiculous. Nobody's going to take an offer that's that stupid. Unless you're Esau, maybe. I don't know. How about, I'll give you this. You give me your place in the will. Because that's what he's asking for. He's saying, I'll give you this one little bowl of soup to satisfy your hunger that you have right now in this moment in trade for your future, for all the blessings you have in store for you. And Esau takes him up on it. How ridiculous is that? What a ridiculous offer. Who would take him up on that? Esau does. Who would take him up on that? Too many people that we know, too. When God presents to us the bountiful riches of eternity, and so many of us end up selling it out for what? For things to meet our cravings in this life. We look at the cravings of this life as if, oh, I can't make it through without being satisfied in this category or that category. And we're willing to trade eternal life for something stupid, some craving, stupid craving in this temporary life. There's no trade there. That's ridiculous. Who would do that? Unfortunately, we can all find ourselves in situations tempted by something that we sometimes think, oh, that maybe that is a good trade. No, it's not. So here we have a situation. He says, sell me your birthright. And not just sell me your birthright sometime. It's like right now, before I even hand it over, before I even give you the bowl of it, do it right now. All right? So what does he say? We're going to verse 32. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is my birthright to me? So is he really about to die? I mean, perhaps he is hungry, right? And perhaps he's been out in the field for a long time. But where is this taking place? Where does Jacob like to hang out? He likes to hang out by by the camp, among the tents, with the people. This story doesn't have to be taking place far away from home. It's not like Jacob takes his stew pot 
and goes and hikes out five miles. Hey, my brother's 10 miles away. If I hike out five miles, he'll come back. I'll meet him halfway. He'll be too hungry to make it to camp. No, that's not it. He hangs out at camp. He didn't plan this. It fell into his lap. What happened? Brother came back to camp and says, I'm about to die. And Jacob makes this ridiculous offer to him that if you're smart, if you're Esau and you're smart, you just say, forget it. I'll go to the tent next door and get some of their food, right? Mm -hmm. But no, he treats his birthright as if it's nothing, as if it's not even worth a bowl of soup. And he trades his birthright for that bowl of soup. Ridiculous trade. All right. So he's saying, look, I'm about to die. Do you ever hang out with people and they say, oh, I'm freezing. And it's like 68 degrees. Or they go, oh, I'm starving. And really, you're only an hour late for lunch and, and you're starving, right? Or it scared me to death and they're talking about a mouse. You know, I mean, people that over-exaggerate things. So I think in this situation, when I read those words, when Esau says, oh, I'm about to die, I think he's exaggerating. I don't think he's actually about to die. I don't think help was very far away. I think he was actually, if he's not in camp, he's very close to camp. It's not like it says he came crawling upon Jacob and said, oh, good, you have stew. No, he's doing fine. He can make it. But what is he? He's got a craving he feels like he has to satisfy. And he treats his birthright as if it's nothing and is willing to trade. So verse 33, then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day, or some of your versions will say, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. This swearing... What Jacob is asking for is he's basically asking to make it formal. So who knows? Maybe up until this point, maybe Jacob was just joking. I mean, maybe it was like this ridiculous offer that maybe it's come up before. Maybe Esau and Jacob have talked about it. Maybe Jacob was like, hey, brother, you know, unless you stick around the camp, how are you going to find out how to be in charge someday? Oh, I don't really want to be in charge. It's too much responsibility. Well, you've got the birthright. You've got to take those responsibilities along with the blessings that come with it. I'd just rather be out in the field. I'd rather be hunting. That's really where I want to be. Well, then give me your birthright. You know, I'm not going to do it. And then maybe at this one time, yeah, okay, you want some soup? Give me your birthright. As if they've already had conversations in the past. And this one time he goes, well, whatever, I'm about to die. Sure, what? you can have it. And then Jacob's like, what? Then let's make it official then. You know, how serious are you? How much do you really want this can of soup or this thing of cup of noodles, right? And says, okay, swear to me then. Like pressing it a little harder. Let's see how far we can get with this. And he does. This is a binding oath. When you verbally made this agreement, when you would swear, back then in these days, when you would swear, basically what you would do is you would say, okay, we're making it official now. And you would say, in the sight of God, I agreed to this. And the idea was that if you reneged, if you backed out of it, that God, because you called upon him to be your witness, would punish you. And you didn't want to fall into the hands of a God that's going to punish you. So most parties would see that as, okay, he must be really serious then. By the way, when you were calling upon God to be your witness, when you're calling upon God's name, in the name of God, I promise I'll do what I say I'm going to do. We have one of the commandments that deals with that, don't we? Where God says, don't misuse my name. Don't take my name in vain. Don't ask me to be your co-signer if you're not going to follow through on your words. All right? Don't tell somebody else that in the power of God, I'm going to keep my word, and you break your word, where does that leave God? That leaves him in a position that he's going to have to either blast you or he's going to have to make a commandment and say, just don't do that, all right? Don't be taking my name in vain. So when somebody would swear an oath and take God's name and not follow through, they're taking God's name in vain. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. 
And then Jesus even had something to say about this. In the time of Jesus, it had grown to be this ridiculous combination of words and phrases that you'd use to testify about how trustworthy you were. And you would say stuff like, I swear on the altar, or I swear on the sacrifice that's made on the altar, or I promise to keep my word with heaven watching over, or I promise in front of the people or the inhabitants of the earth to keep my word, or I promise my head. What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So what did Jesus say? He said, basically, just be no for your word. When you say, yes, I'll do that, do it. When you say, no, I won't do that, then don't do it. He says, we need to be recognized for keeping our word, not because of some combination of words that we put together as an oath, and we think that makes us more believable. It shouldn't be that we have to make this nice combination of words to be born believable. We should just be believable. Mm-hmm. All right, so God wants us, and Jesus teaches that we should be people that keep our words. By the way, where he says here, where Jacob says, swear to me as of this day, he's in charge, right? He's demanding, and he's the one calling the shots at this mm-hmm. point. But at the end of his life, he also says in Genesis forty-seven thirty-one, he says, swear to me there. But it's a completely different situation. He's desperate there. The story there is that he's in Egypt. He's about to die. He can't get home to see himself die in the promised land. So he's about to die, and he tells his son Joseph, bury me not here in Egypt. Take my body and bury it up there and put me in the grave of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And Joseph says, okay, I'll do that. And then he says, swear to me. He's desperate by that time. So here we have some of the first words he ends up saying, swear to me. And then later on he's like, swear to me (laughs) in desperation. Verse 34, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he, this is Esau, ate and drank, arose and went his way. In the Hebrew, you've got four verbs all strung together. And it's really an unusual combination to have four verbs like that in the Hebrew just strung together. Where basically in Hebrew, it's like, and he, Esau, ate, drank, arose, left. As if it was just a matter of routine for him. It's a meal, I ate my meal, and now I'm on my way. And then what? how does it end there? Verse 34, then Esau despised his birthright. Some of your other translations might say he spurned his birthright or he belittled his birthright. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn or he treated as worthless his birthright. Those words that are translated as gave, where it says Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and then the word that's translated, then he ate and drank a rosin. That gave and that ate are the same two words that are used of the fruit that Eve gave to Adam and he mm-hmm. ate. So just as Jacob gives the food to Esau, it's the same idea as the apple or the fruit that was given by Eve to Adam. And just as we read the story and we know what happened with Adam and Eve and you want to go, no, don't eat that. Mm-hmm. Don't eat that. So you would say here as Jacob is offering the bowl of stew to his brother, don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't go there. Don't make that trade. Don't even go down that road in the first place. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews actually ends up talking about Esau. And it says this in chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. It says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully. Who's that? That's to the hearers, right? To look carefully, to be aware of what's going on around you. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God 
lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And then verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Whoa! <laughs> so the writer of Hebrews calling Esau, because of this act, because of this incident, he's calling him what? He's calling him a fornicator and profane. What's another word for profane? It's wicked. And fornicator. Fornication is often used symbolically to describe idolatry. So what was the idolatry? What was the fornication in Esau doing that? Idolatry is anything that you worship instead of God. Esau worshipped himself. His own cravings were more important to him than the path of God. And so what do we see? We see a selfishness in Esau's life that shows up in the form of idolatry. Because really, what is idolatry? It's selfishness. It's doing what we want instead of what God wants. So the uh, writer of Hebrews calling him a fornicator and a wicked or profane person. John Hartley says this, the fame of this story is in inverse proportion to its length. By selling his birthright so cheaply, Esau became the epitome of folly. He symbolizes those who place satisfying the feelings of the moment above valuing issues that matter over time. And then James Montgomery Boyce says, are you despising your birthright? choosing instead the savory but passing pottage of the world? If you have not committed yourself fully to Christ and are not going on with him with all the strength at your disposal, that is precisely what you are doing. You are an Esau, whom the author of Hebrews calls a godless person. How ridiculous it is, right, that Jacob would make such an offer, that Jacob would propose to Esau such a ridiculous trade. But how much more ridiculous is it that Esau took him up on it? The Apologetic Study Bible says, Though it seems outrageous for Jacob to ask for Esau's birthright as payment for some of Jacob's stew, the irreverent Esau had only himself to blame. With only a short-range view to the satisfaction of his immediate needs, he sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. And though it might seem outrageous think that Jacob would offer that to Esau, doesn't Satan do the same thing to us? He offers us something, right? He knows what our cravings are. And he says, oh, what are you craving today? Right? And I would ask that question. What are you craving today? What are we craving today? We all have different things that we crave, right? So what are we craving? Are we craving money? Satan goes, I got a bowl of soup that smells like money for you. You want some of this? What are we craving? Are we craving fame? Are we craving popularity? Are we craving pleasure? Are we craving sex? Are we craving power or respect? Are we craving a life of ease? Satan's going, I got a bowl that smells good to you. Are we willing to resist? Are we willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I got this craving, but I'm not going to trade my eternal rewards for that bowl of stew. Satan will tempt us with a bowl of stew that smells like our favorite hankerings, and he says he'll give it to us in exchange for our relationship with God. He says they'll give it to us in exchange for the glorious future in heaven that we have with the Creator in exchange for our very soul. That's what Satan would offer to us. And we would go, what a ridiculous offer, except when he gives us the bowl that smells good to us, right? And then we go, mm, that does smell good. That smells just like I want it to smell, right? So don't be like Esau. Don't be like so many others who've gone down this road, who have made that trade, who have exchanged eternal inheritance for something that just meets a temporary need. Don't be such a wicked and gluttonous person like Esau was. Make a choice to say, no, I'm not going to give in to that craving. I recognize that this is just a temporary thing. I'm not going to die. I'm going to make it. 
and then holding out, holding on to God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for meeting us here now. We ask you, God, that you would remind us of these words as we go. Because so many times Satan has a wonderfully smelling bowl of something that we hate her for, something that we're craving. And we pray that you would help us to recognize that the attack is on. Help us to recognize the offer that's being made to us, that trade that's being proposed is no good. We pray, God, that you would help us to have an understanding that is eternal, not just temporary. Help us to think beyond the confines of this life where we think that, oh, I'm not going to make it unless I get this craving satisfied. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to look at eternity, not just these brief years that we're here, and to make our decisions based on what we know of your word and what it says of our eternal destination. Help us, Lord, to choose that narrow and difficult path that leads to life rather than that broad and easy road that leads to destruction. Help us, Lord, to not be like Esau. In Jesus' name, amen.